welcome to ED's Sustainable Business Covered podcast. Coming up on today's episode, we're bringing season one of this podcast to a close after almost six years. So join us as we recap on the changing face of sustainable business leadership with some familiar faces. One from ED's very first podcast episode in 2016, and three from the 2021 episodes that you, the listeners, have chosen as your favourites. Yes, a very warm welcome to episode 118 of ED's long-running sustainable business cover podcast. I'm ED's senior reporter Sarah George and I'm delighted to be joined virtually um, by by the other two members of ED's small but mighty editorial team. I'm joined by ED's content editor Matt May styling in from his home and content director Luke Nichols dialing in from a UN Global Compact in, event in Paris. So yes, good good morning, guys. How are you? Yeah, really, really well. Thanks. Not as uh, not as glamorous uh, setup as as Luke has in terms of what he's been up to this week, but uh, good nonetheless. Yeah, it's quite glamorous. Yeah, I'm sort of uh, sat in a nice uh, kind of Parisian street just down the road from uh, the Arc de Triomphe. Like if I kind of crane my head round this uh, nice balcony, I've got I can actually see the Arc de Triomphe. So yeah, I'm not, not can't complain. Yeah, it's all right for some, isn't it, Luke? <laughs> um, great. So it's it's good to be here. And yeah, it's been a while since we've had all three of us on an episode. And I haven't summoned Matt and Luke just because I love the sound of their voices so much. Um, I'm here because this episode is actually going to be the last one before we take our first ever season break. So the ED podcast has been running around every two weeks from spring 2016, with no formal season breaks as such, aside from extended gaps between episodes for our Christmas and Easter holidays. Um, So we are gathered here today virtually to bid a fond farewell to season one together. Um, And I was reflecting on how 2016 sort of feels like a long time ago, but also not. Um, If this podcast were a child, it would be in year one at school. Um, given that it was born in England. Um, Some other things that this podcast is now as old as. So when this podcast launched, One Dance by Drake and Sorry by Justin Bieber were in the charts. Moana, Deadpool and The Accountant were in cinemas. Um, And keeping on a more environmental theme, the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy was just about to be born because um, DEC had just been disbanded. Um, And I joined ED in 2019, but Luke and Matt um, were both at ED when the series first launched. Um, So I wanted to get your reflections on on this, really, having listened back to a couple of the first episodes to prep for for this. What was podcasting like when you when you first launched? Matt, you were you were smiling all the way through that when Sarah was mentioning it. I was I was just, you know, reflecting on the fact that you know our podcast isn't quite as big as Moana which I think in hindsight we'll, we'll chalk that up to something we can maybe improve on for the next uh, series I don't know what the next uh, I suppose the, the the new launch we're going to aim to be bigger than Encanto in, in or whatever the latest Disney film is um, but podcasting has I suppose changed a lot um, we kind of we weren't exactly only moves into the space you know this was Luke's pet project you were very much keen on launching the podcast weren't you Luke and um, it's been a a great way for us to really kind of diversify our content and sustainability is is so broad as it is and you know if you check the the ED website all the stories are really kind of serious Um, they're very much focusing on averting a climate catastrophe and it's very uh, and there's some success stories to share on the way but I think what the podcast has been great for is is kind of touching more on that personal aspect you know speaking to the people that are trying to drive this change kind of thinking figuring out what makes them tick what what their passions is what kind of gets them up in in the morning I think the podcast has been a a great vehicle for that and you know since we launched all those many moons ago I think we've really been able to um, speak to a lot more interesting voices a lot more interesting sectors you know we're not just talking to the CSOs anymore because sustainability has gone mainstream in that time for 
for the podcast, um, Sarah, I'm sure your reflectors are kind of um, unofficial podcast secretary, but the amount of pitches we get just to kind of have people on on on, on these is is testament to the to the growth it's had. Um, and I don't think too much has, has, has changed in terms of the, the the development of it. We're still kind of very much using the same software, the same tools. Obviously, the, the pandemic changed uh, aspects of that, um, but it's been a it's been crazy to 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 watch the growth of the podcast in terms of interest in terms of topic maybe cover you said you know if it was a child it'd be in first year I think if it was my child I'd be charging it rent already that's how that's how a bigger that's how long it feels like it's been around for yeah from my side I think it's um I think just as the industry was a bit of an inflection point coming into 2016 um Sarah just mentioned there was big changes in the government and it was facing a lot of changes or policy a policy bonfire we might talk about it a bit later as it was back in 2016 and um, I think uh, similarly I think the brand Edie was having a bit of an inflection point and a turning point and the podcast really represented that um, it was for us a, a great way of um, just changing how we were relating and connecting to our audience I think it gave uh, an, an easier way to talk to them rather than just always kind of formally interviewing them we sort of turned our conversations with them into more conversations um, and that helped it sort of broke barriers down I think with some of the senior even people that we used to speak with we still do speak with um, and that from a team level Matt you might agree as well it was, it was myself your you and, and George I think back in 2016 wasn't it um, uh, George Ogilvy and and we I don't think any of us were particularly comfortable talking about the sector or the industry if we're honest we we're all relatively new into it but I think the podcast really helped sort of bring out our, our own voice um, and made us feel a bit more comfortable and a bit more like we did have some real I guess right in the space as the as the episodes and the years rolled on um, so that's the good side of it the scary side of it is when Sarah said 118 episodes and I do look back at the pictures that we kind of were going out on the thumbnail images alongside each episode and uh, yeah we've aged Matt yeah aged ter terribly <laughs> it feels like as uh, so I'm uh, no longer the the youthful reporter that I was when it when it launched I'm handed no. weary constantly injured it's, it's fun yeah, yeah. Yeah, no. So to put together this episode, I thought it'd be remiss not to look back to when you were all f fresh faced to go back to the very first episode. Um, do either of you remember what the very first episode actually was? It was from ED Live, which is, uh, if I remember correctly, and we we spoke to about three or four of our speakers from ED Live. I don't know if it was a two parter or not. We've since evolved into kind of two parters for there. But um, yeah, I. I I, I do have memories of kind of frantically running around the NEC in Birmingham with a podcast recorder in one hand, my phone in the other, trying to get hold of the, the people we'd agreed to speak to and try and find a, a quiet spot for a chat with them. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It was live from ED Live. Um, so to start us off for today, I'm actually going to play the first interview um, from that that podcast, which was coincidentally with someone who is a long-standing friend of Edie and thankfully still works within the same sector and organisation, um, and that is WSP's David Simmons, who at present is the business's future ready leader. So let's recap on David's 2016 chat with Luke at Edie Live in full. Hello, David. How, how are you? How's, how's things at um, ED Live so far? I mean, you've obviously we've just registered. Uh, we're in the speakers' lounge now, and we're looking at um, you're speaking in the first session this morning. Are you looking forward to it? Yeah, Luke. Hi, morning. Um, it's um, it's it's what nine o'clock, and it's looking pretty buzzy already. Really looking forward to a good, energetic day. Yeah. And you're speaking on a session focused on policy, regulation, and drivers. Mm. Um, and the presentation you're actually speaking on is is titled uh, Beyond Carbon the other environmental opportunities for business. So what are those opportunities for business? Talk me through your, your presentation this morning. Sure. So we're talking, I mean, the, the, the exhibition here is about sustainability. And so often sustainability gets brought back just to environmental issues and environmental issues just get brought back to carbon. And carbon and, and energy is, is, is a huge game in town for, for business. Um, lots of opportunities to, to innovate, to, to cut cost, but also waste, security, innovation, vision. There are so many other opportunities that exist for business that, that it's really important for, for busy environment and sustainability managers to think wider than just energy and yeah. just carbon. 
And on the sort of looking at the broader policy landscape mm. um, politically, we've, we've, obviously there's COP21, there's the SDGs, there's a the circular economy mm. package that's just been agreed. Mm. Um, a lot of people looking from the outside in might suggest that that's enough, that, that, that that's enough of a platform for, for businesses to now take their sustainability agendas on to the, to the next level. Would you agree with that in terms of the frameworks that are now in place? I think regulation is, is a part. Um, if, if we just think about regulation, the, the, the challenge on the greenhouse gas and carbon agenda, if we just focus there for a moment, is that we have this fantastic rhetoric from government about this five-year long-term vision of being the leader, which it really represented and pushed hard at COP21. And then you've got this near-term agenda of deregulation, of, of, of reducing support to, to low carbon. And, and, and so the, there is still a challenge, which hopefully we'll learn about today, more from, from DEC as they talk, about how they will keep that support in the short term to allow those long-term solutions. And just building on that then, I mean, um, we mentioned the circular economy package mm. there. You're going to be talking about things like natural capital as well yeah. in the session this morning. What other kind of enablers or opportunities or drivers are there that you can kind of see on the horizon that you think will really take us into the the new sustainability era, if you like. Oh, look, I mean, I think if, 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 if people are here and people listening to your podcast, regulation is an important thing, but let's not kid ourselves that by complying with regulation that we drive ourselves to a long-term sustainable economy and also business that, that thrives. Mm. Regulation is the backstop for business. If your listeners and, and for those of you who are, who are, who are active ED practitioners sh- should, should know that, that as well as just regulation, there's all this area around innovation, vision, resilience, new ways to compete, to engage, connect with customers, provide trust, grow your business. And that's just a much richer, more fertile way of thinking about environmental and sustainability opportunities than just regulation. So it's about sort of going beyond compliance, if you like, isn't it? I I think, let's absolutely say, regulation does provide that minimum, and let's celebrate that. Um, but, but, But government certainly doesn't have all the answers, nor should it. Well, I look forward to your session this morning. Uh, Thank you very much for joining us, David. Pleasure. Thanks, Luke. Thank you. Yes, thank you, past Luke, for that interview. Um, And I was actually lucky enough to dial David recently to reflect on some of the comments he made there in the context of 2022. So here is David once again reflecting on his 2016 discussion. It's it's funny, isn't it? I, I was just thinking that... 2016 both sort of feels a long time ago and 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 yet not so long ago um and just sort of reflecting 2016 brexit referendum rio olympics donald trump um it's um yeah i mean a lot has changed hasn't it it has but in in a way a lot hasn't changed as well as you mentioned it's it's a strange one um, so I listened back to that first episode. Um, Luke essentially grabbed you before you were due to go on stage um, for a session on green policy. Um, and part of the discussion was about Beyond Carbon, the other environmental drivers for business. Um, and you mentioned that being a lot of concern about the impact of Brexit and Trump. We move on to 2017-18 and all eyes were on plastics after Blue Planet 2. You moved to, to 2019. Net Zero really took hold. Um, and now we're we're at a place where we, we we still speak about carbon tunnel vision, but there's a lot of other stuff bouncing around as well. Um, so I wanted to get your views on where we're at, at now. Do you think we're at a place where sustainability is looked at by businesses in a more holistic way or do we still have maybe plastics or carbon tunnel vision? I, I think it's a bit of both. I think still there is a tendency for sustainability to equal environment and environment to equal carbon. Um, But we have come a long way, there is no doubt. Um, And and if we just look at greenhouse gas emissions, they've come down in the UK, at least quite substantially um, from 2016. But on the other hand, air quality, water quality, raw material consumption, all of those other environmental indicators are largely unchanged since 2016. Um, and so, yeah, qu- quite clearly, there, there is still a, a, a huge amount to do. Um, I think definitely larger organisations, I think, do have that wider perspective. Um, 
I think if you're a small organization, you're probably still wondering how on earth to do even carbon, I suppose. Um, I suppose my, my sort of re reflection of what I've learned over the past six years is to, to both keep it optimistic, but also to keep it simple. Um, Future Ready, the program I lead in WSP, has grown. I'm very proud it's now the title of our new global strategy. And for us, Future Ready has the beauty of being a very positive single phrase that we challenge our people with. And that allows us to keep it very straightforward and include future of net zero, future of climate change, future of resources, future technology, and then also to be thinking about what's what what is what 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 a society, what are people going to need and 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 their wants in the future as well. It's a complicated background, but we're still keeping it very simple and optimistic for our people. And that's probably a sort of a, a good wrapper rather than trying to 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 ask busy people to, to 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 think about carbon, then climate change and, and all the various resources. That can just get too academic and too difficult. That makes sense. I mean, a lot has been said about how good things like the Future Generations Act are in Wales, because it's the same principle. You just take everything and say, well, hang on, what will this mean for people and the planet now um, and and in the future? So it's just that overarching lens. Yes. Great. Um, and then I also wanted to talk about policy as as well, um, which was spoken about briefly when you were on um, six years ago. And the, the soundbite literally made made me laugh because you could have recorded it at COP26, really. Mm. Um, you, you said that the UK government had a quote unquote fantastic rhetoric of being the leader at COP21, um, but that the near term agenda of deregulation um, could have gone at odds with that. Um, and this is what we heard around COP26 as well, like great narrative of net zero, some great words from Alok Sharma. Um, but then we're also parading around new oil and gas and new coal mine. Um, yeah. Um, so I wanted to get your feeling on whether you're concerned that we're still at, at that point, that gap between talk and, and action, even in a country that that claims it's climate leader. I'm not necessarily sure that we've got a government that is entirely driven now by deregulation. Um, I think that has changed quite significantly. Um, also remember that since 2016 within the UK, greenhouse gas emissions are 20% lower. So let, let's celebrate that. Um, there's been a lot of progress, especially on zero carbon power generation. There is still a huge amount to do in our buildings. There is a huge amount to do in our transport systems. There's a huge amount to do in, in, in British industry. Um, but we have made good progress over the past six years. And I do think that the, the, the government, although, you know, let's, let's absolutely challenge it on some of its decisions, we have a pretty strong net zero strategy. We are reducing um, emissions. I think absolutely there is more detail of the implementation of some of those policies that 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 are absolutely needed. But you know we've got some big frameworks. You know now you you know let's just look at transport. You won't be able to buy a petrol or a diesel new car or van in 2030. You can't buy a diesel um, truck after 2040. You know these are big big policy changes that will affect us all, and that's a uh, a, a great piece of leadership from the UK. I, I also think absolutely that that we now know, as we did in 2016, that government can't do it all. There has to be, and there is, as we saw at COP26, much more of an acceptance that, that, that business has to be a key part of the solution alongside government, not just following uh, government's lead. And that's actually what I wanted to come on to as as well, it's often said that policy isn't the be all and end all. Um, businesses can sometimes be be more agile, um, especially during yeah COVID, <laughs> when some of these packages that you mentioned did come months and months late. We're still waiting for the resources and waste um, stuff to come through. Many consultations underway um, at at the moment. So I wanted to to take a look at where where business can really step in. Um, and make waves here. 
um, on our 2016 podcast, you said that sustainability professionals, quote unquote, shouldn't kid themselves that mm. regulatory compliance will get us where we need to go on climate action or in terms of any other sustainability um, action. Instead, you said that innovation, vision, resilience and new ways of competing, engaging will provide a much richer, more fertile way of framing sustainability. Um, so I wanted to recap on, we've recapped on some wins at a policy level, at a national level. Um, I think it would be nice to look at some of the biggest wins you've seen in the private sector um, since since 2016 as, as well. Um, and building on that, what do you think private sector leadership on sustainability looks like in 2022? You've already mentioned the importance of making sure that the sustainability strategy is the business strategy, for example. I think whoever said that in 2016 if it was me was dead right um and it continues to be the same case that um business is generally better at at, at innovating it's better at speed it's better at spotting the opportunities it's better at scaling ideas internationally um across different markets um and that continues to be the case um regulatory compliance is also really important uh, i i see that this very much goes hand in hand, that regulatory compliance gives the backstop. Um, business then leads and, 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 and raises the bar higher on, um, on, on innovation. And that then gives the political cover for politicians to then raise the bar on regulation. And then that lifts the backstop. That, that is a, a position that, that, that holds more true than ever. Um, and, and 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 again, just to pick up a transport analogy, if you just look at you know the 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 electric vehicle market um, and the price of batteries, um, it was only, I think it was about 2016 when the 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 the, the car industry was saying that the internal combustion engine would still be the main way of 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 driving in you know the 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 2040s out to 2050 and just in 6 years now the 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 EV industry is saying actually 2035 and petrol diesel cars are out because EVs will have innovated so fast it's just a classic example because then that gives that gives government the cover um uh, alongside other automakers at COP26 to to sign up to um their their pledge on on phasing down petrol and diesel vehicles it's a, it's a great example i think the the other thing i would just warm to is very often when we talk about this we're talking about big business and wsp future ready has been so successful in raising the sustainability ambition and delivery of our business because it helps us grow that is absolutely also the same for, um, for example, some of the work that I'm doing with Kingston Borough Council, uh, London Borough um, at the moment, where I, I had the pleasure of chairing a group with, with Kingston Council on um, green recovery from, from COVID and how green can, can support business recovery. And we are absolutely focusing this on spotting and delivering um, ideas and, and, um, and, and, and better ways of, of of delivering Kingston and London and businesses and, and our all of our ambitions to have a better life through green and to use that for small businesses to to, to showcase the, the the successes and also inspire small business leaders to do that. So together this is the, the the opportunity that green can be a business growth opportunity through bravery, through innovation, like any innovation program. And then you have the regulatory framework that comes in behind it. Again to David from WSP. And yeah, it was it was odd to listen back. Um, it was odd to call David. Um, in a way, as, as you've mentioned, everything has changed. Sustainability has gone mainstream. Um, net zero is going mainstream. We've been to COP26. Um, but in a way, there's still much that's still much that's um, that's the same. So David mentioned policy gaps, finance gaps um, and too many businesses seeing sustainability as a tick box or a burden than an opportunity to yeah, reinvigorate their strategy and unlock um, innovation. And Luke, you mentioned earlier how you feel that in 2016, the industry was sort of an, an inflection point did you want to go into that a bit more and give more of a reflection on yeah the past six years in sustainable business 
Yeah, it was, I mean, it was a state of, I think at the time, it was a state of, it was inflection now that we look back on it because there then has been tremendous change. And, but I think at the point, in the moment, um, what I remember at that time was, it was uh, it was a slightly depressing time for the sector, really. It was, um, everything was just so up in the air. Um, particularly from a, a policy perspective, we'd seen the scrapping of support for onshore wind, solar subsidies were being scrapped, biomass had been hit. Um, the the flagship green homes um scheme had, had at the time had been um had been killed off um green investment bank had been sold i remember all the other things that were going 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 on at the time there was incentives around purchasing greener cars that were changing not for the better um diesel gate even at that time was just a, just happened as well so there's a lot of kind of scary things and kind of negative things happening around um, industry and and um, and sort of green policy, um, but then I think uh, it wasn't all doom and gloom. There was a sense of change kind of um, happening and starting to rise. We just had COP21, of course, and every single day of those talks in Paris was headlined by kind of major commitments that that we were reporting at the time could have profound impacts on on green investment and business prospects. And um, I remember it was. Uh, I don't know why I remember this kind of stuff. It just sums up my brain. But I think that at the time I remember speaking to uh, like Mike Barry and he was sort of saying um, COP21 was the easy bit, he was saying, but the hard yards of action lie ahead, which was kind of a quote that I remember using throughout the 2016-17. Um, so it was like, I guess that was the sense at the time was like we, we had finally set out some context that was needed to be able to progress. We'd seen the circular economy package recently launched. The SDGs as a framework had been recently launched. Um, and there were some really positive developments that we were starting to see. I remember that was around the time that you may remember probably reporting on this, Matt, the whole Unilever sort of sustainable living brands were starting to really outperform the rest of their portfolio, growing at twice the rate. And, um, and that was sort of, a, I guess, symbolic of some of the changes that we were seeing at a corporate perspective. But for me, sorry, this has become a bit of a lecture, but the, the one area that uh, I would probably look at to really summarise the state of change we've seen in the space over the last five or six years has been in green finance um, in the global green bond market. Um, we, I wrote a story back in 2016 that it had grown from about 36 billion, 36 and a half billion in 2014. This is the green bonds market, so you know fixed income instruments for to support specifically um, climate related or environmental projects. It was about 36 and a half billion of that um, issued in 2014. And I'd reported that that had gone up to 38 billion. So great progress. We were kind of reporting in mid-November 2015. It's now half a trillion, so it's now 500 billion. So as of 2021, um, with growth in that volume on track to hit 1 trillion this year. So we're going to double again. So I think that that in itself as a growth um, phase of five, just five or six years, really just summarizes how the momentum has pulled through um, over the last couple of years in particular. So having a podcast and kind of being able to look back at that progress over time is actually genuinely pretty fascinating. Yeah, we'll have more on green finance later, actually, Luke. So thank you for touching it and thank you for your um, summing up. I do feel like I am at uni and need to take some some notes, even though I have been here for four of those six years. Um, we're going to take a very short break now. So join us after the jingle for a recap on two of your favourite podcast segments from the last 12 months. Hello and welcome back to this episode of Edie's Sustainable Business Covered podcast, a special recapping on almost six years of this series before we take our first ever season break. I'm Edie's senior reporter Sarah George and I'm joined virtually by the other members of Edie's editorial team, Matt Mace and Luke Nichols. Luke, you gave such great look back over the past six years of yeah green business in the UK, but I feel like we've maybe been a bit too enthusiastic um, I've written this this script without starting with a big explainer about why we're taking a series break um, and what our listeners can expect when we're 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 back. Um, so I was I was wondering if you could please do that that for the listeners. I have a vague idea, but but you're the boss. Yeah. So we're we're it's probably about time for a break, right? I'm not sure what level, what how many numbers of episodes you're meant to have in a single series. 
Um, I think the current Stranger Things phenomenon is uh, starting to change that somewhat, isn't it, in terms of how many episodes and how long each episode should be. But um, I think this, uh, this, you know, 118, we're kind of probably reaching the point that it's right for an actual break. Um, so that will be season one, I think. That'll be, that'll be season one, finally, a wrap. Um, and we're going to be coming back. I think there's going to be a short hiatus. Um, I keep saying I think a lot because um, this is a little bit dependent. We're, we're building uh, and we've built a, a studio, at our headquarters, which we're just at the final points now, just kind of um, getting all finished and ready to go. So um, that's exciting. Going to have that new studio, new recording equipment. And with it, we're using it as an opportunity to, to come back bigger and better with, you know, new music, new imagery, fancy new sofa, I'm told. Um, we'll be able to bring guests in on um so that's all it should be should be good it should have an actual you know positive impact i think on the, on the quality not to downgrade our own quality over the last couple of few years but um i think it's, it's sort of time for a refresh right and as the industry is growing so fast and it's nice for us to be able to kind of keep up with that and, and sort of hopefully take this podcast in some new directions without giving away too much detail um so and in terms of timings as i say it's a bit dependent but hopefully august um, but if, if not, if any further than that, then hey, the audience, I suppose, have got 118 episodes they can catch up on. No, if further than that, I'll personally be going around to audiences' houses with a news in brief because I'll, I'll be getting withdrawal symptoms. Um, but thank you, Luke, for the update. Um, and yeah, wanted to head back into reflection and back into our guests. Um, so for the rest of this episode, we're still very much in that mode, but for times more recent than on that first 2016 um, episode and with discussions which are perhaps a little bit more specific than that which we had with David in part one. So I'm going to pull out two more guest interviews, one from each of the two most popular sustainable business covered episodes from 2021. Um, I'm gauging popularity by the number of streams on SoundCloud. Remember, other platforms are available. And yeah, Matt, I've, I realise I've maybe talked to Luke a little bit more, so I'm going to bring you in and ask if you have any guesses as to what those two most popular episodes were please do not call up your soundcloud on your laptop i was about to say like the last i think since kind of pandemic the last years just blur into this kind of big mess of a of a of a time so i can't differentiate um any kind of uh episodes i wouldn't be able to kind of even pull out one so i mean trying to think if we did anything live at the kind of uh forum last year which i think we might have and i would has to guess that that would have been up there um it's always a fun episode to do again lots of running around uh grabbing some speakers just before they quite rudely before they have their lunch and asking for a kind of a reflection on the day so far um so i'd like to put uh that one up there for suggestions and in terms of another one um i'll go for an engagement theme one we obviously run podcasts around our themed piece of content and engagement's just been huge um this year certainly kind of i say post lockdown as brands have been able to put themselves in front of consumers a lot more certainly face to face i think engagement around uh, aspects like sustainability certainly greenwash as right it is right now is important so those would be my two guesses as sustainable leaders forum one and the engagement week special right so last year we didn't have an in-person forum so the only running around we were doing was in our home offices mm. um and you're right that the two events that you've mentioned we have podcasts live from them in 2021 and they're both doing very well um but they haven't benefited maybe from having quite as much time live on the sites um so looking live our, our our best performer was the cop 26 focus week special which went live in early october um 2021 so everyone keen to preview and get ready for glasgow um and then as much as it's great to see people focusing on events and on working uh pubs bars and beverages have topped it for the second one um our episode on net zero buildings bars and beverages went live in august 2021 um so yeah who isn't looking for a, a pop-up pub in the in the height of summer and wanting it to be eco-friendly um so from the cop 26 focus week special first of all we're pulling out the interview with the green lead for the greater manchester local enterprise partnership steve connor 
So cast your minds back. We're all preparing for Glasgow in a couple of weeks time and thinking about what non-state actors can contribute. Hi, Steve. It's a pleasure to have you on, on the podcast. How are you doing? Yeah, good. Thanks. So really good, really good and lovely to uh, lovely to be with you. You too. And I'm presuming, um, hence your job title, that you're dialing in from Manchester. Is it a sunny Manchester this Friday? It's trying. They're, they're, it's trying to break through and brighten all our lives. I think by by the time the day's over, we'll have had a little shaft of sunshine, making everything okay. Okay. Well, a a plus for effort. Um, and <laughs> I I think um, I know that um, Edie and yourself have worked together on various bits and bobs, um, but I think it's your first time on on the podcast. Um, so for my benefit and the benefits of for the listeners. Um, it'd be great to hear a little bit about yourself, um, so what your focus areas are as the green lead for the Local Enterprise Partnership, um, and also a little bit more about um, yeah how you came to be in that role. Yeah, sure, Sarah. Well, I, I joined the Greater Manchester LEP Local Enterprise Partnership uh, in April, um, very explicitly uh, with a, a desire to champion um, clean growth, green economy, um climate emergency call it what you will all those things sustainable um so i've and since then um i've been focusing very specifically on revitalizing the program to take all of the 125,000 businesses in greater manchester uh on an accelerated path to net zero um because obviously we can't achieve our goals we've got a science-based target for greater manchester of Uh, net zero by 2038 and we can't do that unless we take business with us so that's been my primary area of focus Um, and then beyond that my day job um, is I run a company in Greater Manchester called Creative Concern which is a sustainability focused communications company Um, I've also recently chaired the Community Forest Trust which is the parent charity of a number of community forests and I chaired also Greater Manchester's uh, climate change action plan so i've had a few different sustainability hats to wear over the years great and in terms of the partnership and the climate action plan um we've had a look really in how cities and regions can lead on decarbonisation and we've we've spoken to people in manchester about that 2038 target um that you that you mentioned um but i think something that's coming up increasingly is opportunities to lead now on not only climate mitigation so the decarbonisation um, but adaptation and resilience um, as well. So I'd love to hear your thoughts about how cities and city regions can lead on that. And I know you've sent me some notes about some really exciting projects in that space. Yeah, thanks, sir. I, I think cities, um, um, the adaptation uh, piece and creating more resilient cities um, is something actually that's not that new to Greater Manchester in the northwest of England. Would you believe um, our first climate change um, plan in 1998 was actually an adaptation plan? It was actually an examination of what the impacts of climate change might be and how we could in some way prepare the region for them. So we've kind of we're, it's never we've never taken our eye off the ball on this, actually. And I think it's important to say that it's not a. a something that's sort of come late to the table. I think for for Manchester very specifically, our our first climate change plan was in 2009 and adaptation was one of the five strands of it. Um, So as a city, we've we've been focused on this quite for quite some time, not least because, and I know it's often said, um, we're really conscious as a city that's really focused on social justice that the impacts of climate change are felt hardest by those who are least responsible for creating it. And so for for a city that leans towards sort of social justice and environmental justice, it's it's been a a bit of a no brainer for us to make sure that adaptation is quite close to the top of our agenda. When it comes to cities, I I think that there's a huge uh, opportunity for leadership on climate adaptation because cities have got so many levers they can pull um, and so I don't ever want to see it left behind um, as a sort of second uh, second tier subject after mitigation. We've got spatial plans, we have developer levies, um, we have the co-benefits that can come from infrastructure spending and other things like that. We have so many tools at our disposal to make adaptation happen um, and to create and draft plans at a city scale 
um, that can help us um, adapt swiftly. So we do have a really important leadership role to take. For sure. And you mentioned there that the city, as you say, has a long history here um, and climate justice comes naturally. But I wanted to get a feel on whether this approach could apply to other places which might not be as far um, on that journey. And specifically, when we look at things like nature based solutions um, and resilience, we often ask, well, don't they need to be context specific? What about the local biodiversity? What does the local landscape um, look look like. So what are the opportunities here for replicating that elsewhere? Um, and what are the sort of context specific considerations that you'd say need to be considered? Well, in a UK context, um, when any city claims to be the birthplace of the Industrial Revolution, um, several of our northern and midland cities start to roll up their sleeves and and get ready for a scrap over. No, we started the Industrial Revolution. It wasn't you. Anyway, just for the record, we did. And um, the um, so so for, for for Manchester, so steeped in industry, our path towards both decarbonisation and climate resilience is a really interesting one, isn't it? Because we're on a journey from you know the world's first industrial city to becoming a, a sustainable city of the future. And I've often said that if Manchester and Greater Manchester can go on this journey, um, then no other city really anywhere in the world can say that this is too difficult. Um, because we 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 have all of that baggage of the 17th, 18th and 19th centuries and 20th century to deal with. So we um, have a huge opportunity to show that this is perfectly possible. Um, in terms of context specific adaptation, I think it's a really good point. There isn't any simple template that you can lay over a city and say, right, there's your adaptation plan, off you pop. Um, and it's a bit like I know it's a really sort of hackneyed um, uh, piece of symbolism, but uh, green infrastructure, nature-based solutions, call it what you will, ecosystem services, we could track back through the jargon that's been used to describe this space. But for me, it's always like a Swiss army knife. It's got loads of little useful tools and cool gadgets tucked away inside of it. And you probably need to use all of them at some point. So the the things that nature-based solutions offer from, you know, doing flood risk through to uh, creating shade, reducing the heat island effect, making people happier. These are all things that um, apply in almost every city in the world. So the, the broad suite of tools that nature can deliver for cities um, are all appropriate. You just have to dial them up or dial them down depending on which city you're in. For Greater Manchester, we've got um, significant issues over flood risk, for example, because we've got a whole bunch of uh, really beautiful hills all around us, but there's a, a load of runoff that brings it into our towns and city centres. So I would probably put um, flood risk pretty high uh, on, on my list. Um, but all the other um, things that nature can deliver for a city uh, are appropriate to Greater Manchester as well. I think for those who's working on the future cities, um, getting our heads around nature-based solutions does require us to re-emphasise for people who just don't get it that nature and the city belong together. Um, and that's sometimes not um, very apparent to key decision makers, those steering our economies that I always love the phrase that the economy is a wholly owned subset uh, of the environment. And so cities need, deserve, want and must foster nature because the two can only work together. Fantastic. Thank you so much. And and you've mentioned there the need for yeah improvements in storytelling, as you've mentioned, um, and in planning and in measuring metrics. But something else that we hear a lot about is is the funding gap um, in nature based solutions financing. And you've kindly sent me some notes about um, the ways in which the partnership is working to innovate funding models. Um, so I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit more about mm. that. Yeah, in Greater Manchester, we've got a few um, really interesting projects and initiatives and partnerships going on. Um, we've got a big programme called Ignition, uh, which is a, an EU funded programme um, led by a whole bunch of city partners like the um, Lancashire Wildlife Trust, by the Greater Manchester Command Authority, our brilliant community forest called City of Trees. 
And it's looking um, both at generically at nature-based solutions and the city and what, what they can deliver and any innovative approaches to involving people in them, to, to innovate in planning. But one of the really critical bits of the mix is how do we introduce novel or innovative financing mechanisms to help support and deliver nature-based solutions. Uh, and so that's one of the really critical parts of the Ignition project. Um, there's uh, a few of the highlights, I think probably are the setting up of a Greater Manchester Environment Fund. Um, so if all the little pots are funding, can't deliver as much as if they're aggregated together. So um, we're busy setting up a Greater Manchester Environment Fund um, to help deliver some of this. And then the, the kind of checklist of different funding mechanisms that the project's looking at include uh, co-investment. So if, you, if you're spending on infrastructure anyway, uh, introduce nature-based solutions into that investment. Um, you know, don't spend twice. It's a bit of a no-brainer, but it's amazing how often people miss that. Um, things like developer levies, um, so if you get a permit to develop, you have to introduce some nature-based solutions into that mix. Um, some of the more challenging ones, um, like endowments and green bonds that are becoming more popular and more talked about, we're looking at those. Uh, and even things like um, service charges for nature. So if you are lucky enough to be a recipient very directly of a nature-based solution, should you be helping to support that? Um, and that's been looked at and for a number of years now, in particular looking at how parks can be funded in a more sustainable way. Uh, and then there's some of the ones that um, sort of ED's readers and listeners on the podcast will have heard about, like things like uh, biodiversity net gain uh, and how can we use that to deliver more nature-based solutions. So that whole um, mix, that's the kind of bigger, longer list of innovative solutions. And one thing that's coming out early um, in the Ignition project is how can we blend them together? Because if you take any one of those just on their own, sometimes they're just a little bit tricky to get off the ground. But if you get one, two, three or even four different funding streams and combine them, then you can deliver uh, an awful lot more. So those are the sorts of things we're looking at. The other thing that we've recently been involved in at a Greater Manchester scale with also with Merseyside and with London in the southeast is looking at the future of environmental land management support, ELMS as it's known. Uh, and one thing that a lot of people might have missed um, uh, as we move away from common agricultural policy towards public goods being the focus of public support for managing land sustainably is that urban land now counts in elms. So what's being called urban elms is potentially a really interesting space to look at, uh, in particular more tree planting and how we can make good on the target we've got in Greater Manchester of uh, a new tree for every man, woman and child living in the city region. So I'd say urban elms is also one that we're really focused on and trying to work with. That's really fascinating because as much as we hear, oh, the projects aren't getting the funding, we often hear from people that say, well, I've got the money and it's challenging to learn how to allocate it. And from from working on innovations on ED, yes, we, we see a lot of fancy te technologies, but it's also about looking at the systems and processes and innovating there. Yeah. Oh, I agree, sir. I mean, you're absolutely spot on. And also, um, and we, we're not there yet, but bringing pulling all of uh, all of the opportunities you have at a city scale together into an investable proposition for somebody who can release funding that's the kind of really key challenge and i don't think anybody's really cracked the code on that yet as a city or city region and uh, and to be honest that's one of our real um, urgent requirements i think for greater manchester is just pull all this together so it's really coherent and somebody can invest in it. And that, to be honest, that goes beyond nature-based solutions. That applies as much to retrofit, to decarbonising our transport system um, uh, through to energy supply. So all of that really, really makes a huge amount of sense. You're dead right. A big thank you once again to, to Steve. I hope you're doing well nine months on from this episode. And I'm going to segue swiftly into our third and final guest speaker slot for this episode, which is being filled by Ian Peart and Nick Brown. We actually recorded this episode in late July 2020, so around 11 months ago, at which point Nick was Coca-Cola Euro-Pacific Partners' Head of Sustainability and Ian was Pernod Ricard's Commercial Director for the UK. Ian remains in his role while Nick has moved on and is now with Premier Foods. 
And this interview was recorded to mark the launch of Net Zero Now's Net Zero Bars and Pubs initiative, which provides an industry protocol and certification standards for the sector um, in the UK. Um, so pour yourself a beverage because here it is in, in full. Well, a very warm welcome to you both um, on the podcast. And I'm heavily disappointed that I can't be at the pub with you in London on this on this um, sunny afternoon. How are you both? Yeah, very good. Thank you, Sarah. Yeah, excellent, Sarah, in the pub. It's, it's a bit warm, I must say, but it's good to be out in the on trade again. Fantastic. Um, and great to be talking about net zero in a sector that's super engaging and we can all think about which is pubs, bars, beers and beverages. Um, I think it would be good just to recap, essentially. So this is a net zero now initiative. It takes in businesses from all across the sector and you guys as businesses are acting as development partners for this um, initiative. But I think it would be worth probably recapping sort of um, CSEP and Perno Ricard's approaches to climate in-house as well that have sort of laid the foundations for this collaboration. So, Nick, if I could start with you, um, I'd love to briefly recap um, on the partnership's climate approach, so its targets and what changes there have been in, in the past year, I think, since we've had you on the podcast. Sure. So um, at CCEP, we manufacture and distribute a, a lot of brands that people will know. Um, last autumn, we launched a new set of um, climate targets, um, and that was basically in recognition of the fact that we needed to do more to update them to align them with the latest science. So the the three key elements of that was a an ambition to be net zero across our total value chain, so our scope one, two and three by 2040, a 250 million euro investment programme, uh, which kicks off now, which is to try and reduce our carbon impact by another 30% from what we've done over the last few years by 2030. And 90% of our carbon impact is in our scope three. Um, and that's an important context for the conversation we're going to go on to have about um, how we work with our customers. Uh, clearly, the majority of that is with our suppliers. So um, for our largest, most strategic suppliers, we've put in place a new set of requirements on them, basically, to set their own science based targets to support the RE100 programme and also to start sharing more specific data on the products and services that they sell to us so that we can um, understand what's working, where we need to do more. So we launched that last year. We're now working through um, how we bring that to life with all the different sectors of our business and developing country specific roadmaps um, for each of our territories to do that. And Ian, could I recap on what's going on in regard to emissions and net zero at Perno Ricard UK? Yeah, sure, Sarah. Um, yeah, I mean, for Perno Ricard, um, you know, being committed to the environment, being sustainable is, is quite deep rooted in our DNA. I mean, some of our brands have been uh, around for over 200 years. Um, we're essentially, you know, we rely on an agricultural base to, to, to make our products. So it's sort of, you know, certainly within our own interest to kind of make sure that uh, in 200 years time or a thousand years time, you know, the, the means to make our products are, are still there in the market. So uh, it has been a focus for us for a long time. Uh, certainly um, going back to last year, we launched our uh, sustainability and responsibility strategy, which we call Good Times um, from a Good Place. Um, and that's got a, a roadmap to 2030 for us, um, which is centered around four pillars. So firstly is maturing terroir to kind of make sure um, we're doing things the right way in terms of, of making things and our partners making things. We've got circular making, valuing our people, and responsible hosting. So we have four main pillars. It's, it's the forefront of the, of the company strategy, um, and we're all engaged around that. Um, probably also what's changed with it within the uh, kind of last 12 months or so is actually uh, externalizing our ambitions as well. So that's an in internal um, strategy we've got. Um, but obviously, what we were talking about today, uh, we're talking about today is a net zero pubs and bars. Uh, initiative that uh, we're doing in partnership with with Coca-Cola and Nick's representing there and the Sustainable Restaurant Association and, and Net Zero Now. And that's actually kind of realising exactly what Nick said is 90 percent, again, of our emissions are in, in sector three and working with our partners, you know, mainly upstream in the supply chain, but very importantly downstream. And it's becoming really important for them and they're very engaged around this um, 
uh, this topic as well. And so, you know, what can we do to support our customers in helping them on their journey as well? Great. And Ian, I'd like to come on to that question, really. So what can you do as a drink supplier to support this kind of customer? So bars and pubs um, to reach net zero, because obviously this initiative is being piloted um, in bars and pubs, but you guys are ultimately the development partners. So clearly it's really important to tackle that scope three and to go for that collaborative approach. Yes, and uh, you know, I, I'm here as uh, the kind of commercial director of Pernod Ricard. I, I'm not an environmental uh, expert, but I, I'm here because it is becoming more and more part of our commercial com conversation with with our partners in the on trade. And um, you know, I think through the research we got, you know, over 80% of um, our customers are saying that they understand how important that environmental issues are, and they want to do something about it. The, the, the challenge they've got, apart from the other challenges the sector's facing at the moment, is they don't know what to do. You know, they, they, they haven't got uh, the means of calculating where they currently are and they haven't got the, the tools in place to then actually put an action plan in to get uh, a plan towards that net zero uh, place where that we, we want all of our businesses to be. So essentially that, was, that is what we put together. Uh, with the partners in terms of the net zero pubs and bars initiative is actually just making it more simple more easy more clear for uh, our partners in the on trade uh, to realize where they are and work towards um, the goal of getting to net zero and i wanted to ask on that as well so for, so for example how that collaboration will work so you've mentioned there your climate targets but what would happen for example if a bar or a pub that stocks you or products maybe had a, a sooner deadline maybe they thought they could go for um you know a 2025 but they they stock a coca-cola or a or a perno ricard well i can start with that one sarah so at ccp we've nearly half the carbon impacts of the products we sell over the last decade will be reducing it by another 30 percent this decade uh, and we we plan to be net zero by 2040 so i think everyone's on that journey and we'll keep um decarbonizing the products and services that we sell um and we know that customers will want to work on the things they control so for us the elements that the customers control in, in pubs and, and restaurants and bars that have an impact on our carbon impact are how the product gets to them, how is it mm -hmm. delivered, what's the route to market, um, what equipment do they use, do they use fridges and coolers or dispensers, um, what uh, what um, what do they do with the packaging when it's finished. So all those elements have a have a real direct impact on our carbon impact as a as an organization so we'll particularly be wanting to make sure that outlets understand those that what they can do in those areas but we need to do that in the context of a net zero movement altogether we we can't be having a separate conversation about soft drinks from alcoholic drinks from from food suppliers we need a, a joint program so that's why we're really happy to be collaborating to make this program as big as it possibly can be to bring as many people in as possible so that we can all move more quickly uh, towards those net zero commitments that we all have to set for our own organizations. Ian I don't know if you had anything to add there so at the panel today there was a lot said about um, when can we move and how a lot of pubs saying that you know in the next six to twelve months I could only really do things that are cost neutral or would would reduce costs um is essentially so what's your view on this sort of this sort of timeline question yeah um yeah i mean that, that's quite a difficult uh question to give a holistic answer to because you know the the on trade has got uh, you know there's over a hundred thousand outlets uh in in the uk that have, have got a license so you're talking a very broad brush of um big businesses small businesses you know hotels restaurants uh, pubs bars uh, nightclubs so, and they're all in in obviously because of the pandemic in slightly different places um however you know as we talked about this morning you know we we found 30 bars that went through the pilot study with with us we've learned a lot from that engaging with them um to kind of fine tune uh, what we can put out into a wider audience um you know for, from from uh today onwards um the cost is quite uh, uh it's definitely uh, one of the the interesting things that's come out of the study because i think there is this preconception that if i'm moving my um pub or bar um to on that sort of 
carbon uh, neutral or net zero basis what uh, it will cost me a fortune and, and I won't be able to pass it on but actually I think the the overall cost per cover i.e cost per customer that came in there was a range um, from about one to seven p something in, in you know per cover so you know and an average out at five p so again it is a cost but it seems to be a manageable cost in the context of, of everything else. That that would be, be the first thing. And certainly also, you know, when, when um, uh, pub and bar operators engage in this, there's, there's certain in initiatives that you can do now that actually either don't cost any money at all but, or actually save you money. I mean, it, energy is, is the prime example of that. So, you know, switching to um, uh, different light bulbs, making sure equipment is turned off overnight. You know, there's lots of fridges in, in pubs, so you don't need to be chilling product overnight because people aren't you know, consuming until lunchtime. Um, you know, turning uh, down the notch on your thermostat just a couple of degrees. So there's lots of very simple things that, that, that people can implement, which will actually save them money uh, in the longer term, including switching to renewable energy suppliers. So those are some of the kind of nuggets that we've already uh, found uh, through the trial period. And Sarah, I think it's worth laying out the structure of the toolkit because there's a lot of work gone into that. So the, the first bit of feedback that we got from many customers was actually they wanted some help on understanding their carbon impact and measuring it. So the first part of the toolkit and the protocol is all about how to measure and understand um, your your impact. And it's it's not in a very academic way it's a very tangible way for the for the operators in in that channel the second one is how do you set your targets and and what should you be aiming for and and when and and the third element is identifying all the plans that you might need to put in place to to do that and then the the final element is about certification if you want to get as far as um actually reducing your impact and offsetting um what's left a certification program for doing that and we understand that different customers in the channel are going to want to move through that journey at very different paces so the the toolkit is a is one that will allow them to do that at their own pace great and i'd say that aside from this pace question and the cost question the other major theme that came up during the talks at the launch event um, was about influence and, and engagement. So pubs will have big teams of staff, huge amounts of customers and links to other local businesses um, as as well. And I know that Perno Ricard and CCEP will both have consumer engagement campaigns. So they'll have communications, on pack messaging, um, and as you mentioned, that all important supply chain engagement um, as, as well. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on how pubs and bars can best do engagement on net zero with, with customers. Uh, so I go first, Nick. I mean, I think, um, you know, actually, if, you, if you're going to do all of these things, um, you know, you've got to talk to consumers about it because uh, they do want to hear about it. I mean, 83% of consumers that we talk to expect um you know, uh, food and drink manufacturers and uh, on-trade venues to be engaging in this topic because it, it's it's very important to them. So people do want to hear about what uh, outlets are doing. Uh, they do have a, a huge opportunity at most outlets in terms of they've already got a social media presence. Um, most most of the outlets have had to increase that over the last uh, 12 to 15 months and, and you know they've got now digital apps so people can order from tables and outside and all of those things so they probably have more um, uh, platforms than ever to, to to spread spread the word also uh, quite interestingly on the talk that we had earlier on uh, Hamish from Peach Pubs was talking about also uh, empowering his staff and, and getting his staff to talk to his consumers when they were at the table and what is appropriate um, conversations to have and, and when you have them because they don't, you don't want to come across as preachy or uh, you know as evangelist on this thing because that's potentially what some people don't want to hear when you know when, when when they're on their night out so it is about getting that balance in communication of telling people and educating people but also um, not coming across to too hard and too preachy so um, but yeah I, I think you know in the round uh, consumers definitely want to hear what uh, what businesses are doing um, and being very transparent about it. Great and Nick I don't know if you had anything to add on that one. 
only I was struck by talking to Hamish on the on the panel today from Peach Pubs about just how empowered they feel with the information and the data to find the right way of doing that. They feel that they understand their clients, they understand what they've come out for. Um, he was very clear that they could really flex that messaging based on what time of day, what type of outlet, what type of client. And um, we don't want to turn all pubs into classrooms on the issues of climate change, but we do want to get across some some clear and simple messages. And I think the concept of net zero and net zero now and the concept of some kind of certification is a really simple and engaging way of um, of getting that across to to clients without having to, to to go into a lot of detail, which will be there behind the scenes if they want to get into that. I think also just to add to that, one of the interesting thing um, in hospitality industry that is is facing a bit of a staff shortage and a bit of a staff sh um, crisis in, in getting people to work in hospitality, how important it is uh, in attracting and retaining staff to actually have um, some environmental and sustainable credentials. Um, and Hamish, again, from Peach was talking about, you know, that is they, they, they need to engage their staff and their staff want to feel they're working for an organisation that is getting on the front foot uh, with these kind of initiatives. And, uh, you know, it's a competitive marketplace out there for staff at the moment. And uh, again, it's another reason for why uh, the hospitality sector should engage in initiatives such as we're talking about now. Great. Well, I would love to stay and chat all afternoon and would be even more keen to do so if we were all in person um, with a pint at the pub. Um, but for this podcast, that's all we have time for. So thank you so much for all your insight on this initiative. Thank you, Thanks, Sarah. Sarah. And with that, the guest speaking slots for this episode are filled and it's almost time to sign off. Um, so hopefully we've provided a great reflection on, yeah, almost six years of the ED podcast. Um, do either of you have any any final words, any final reflections before I come to the formal roundup? Um, no, but, you know, we'll, we'll see you all again. Well, not see you, you'll hear from us again soon. So enjoy the break while it lasts, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, yeah, so it's rather emotional, isn't it? End of coming to the end of a season like this. But um, I think the good thing is, yeah, looking ahead, uh, I think there's a lot more, a lot more to come. So, yeah, that's a very short bump way of putting it, but yeah. No, not at all. Um, yeah, so in, over the next few weeks, you can keep up to date with all things ED through our website, um, through our daily and weekly email newsletters and on our social media channels. And of course, as Luke mentioned, you can revisit any of the past podcast episodes. But as Luke said, it's important to look forward to bigger and better things. And there are a couple of special things coming up in the calendar to tide you over and keep you connected to all things ED. Coming back to Luke's point on climate finance, we will be hosting a week on that topic on the week beginning of 18th of July. This editorial campaign is going to be dedicated to exclusive content and events to inform and inspire you all to mobilise and scale up finance that accelerates the just transition to net zero. We're delighted to have inspired Energy on Board sponsoring that week. To find out more about how you can get involved, head to our website and click events in the top banner, then Climate Finance Week 2022. Um, but for today, I know that Luke has to check out of his hotel um, in Paris and I need to have another cup of coffee before I get too emotional about the podcast. So that really is everything today. So Matt and Luke and I will see you in a few weeks on the revamp podcast, um, new equipment, new sofa, new jingle, new imagery, and maybe even another co-host, but definitely some more great guests. For today's episode, though, it's a goodbye from Matt. Goodbye. A goodbye from Luke. Bye. And a goodbye from me. Goodbye. Goodbye.